Um, in your Bibles, please turn to Romans, Romans chapter 15. We'll just read the first handful of verses. We'll read to verse 6, so we've got a little bit of context. But we're going to be concentrating very heavily on verse 4, the middle one. Romans chapter 15, 1 to 6. Text tells us there, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbour for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now the God of all patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another, according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The focus is going to be on verse 4, uh, and the sermon this morning is simply titled, Written Aforetime. We recognise something inherent with regards to that which is going to be bringing us patience and comfort and also bringing us hope. And that is that we have the word of God, that it has an absolute authority within our lives and that it was indeed written aforetime and it was written for a purpose. It was written for our learning. It provides to us the, the patience that we need, the comfort that we need. It is the scriptures that are given us that we might have hope. We, in all honesty, we would truly know of a certainty nothing in this world if it wasn't for the Bible. We would know literally nothing. We would have absolute confidence and certainty of absolutely nothing. We would be living in absolute darkness. We would be living with a, a time of confidence in practically nothing. We cannot know for certain anything to be sure without a final authority to be able to provide that for us. Um, and we see many people living their lives as if that is true, as if they can be confident of nothing. Um, the Bible, without the Bible, we would know, and I've got an extensive list here, which you might want to consider. Without the Bible, we would know nothing about how life began. Nothing about our, our purpose in this world, about God. Nothing about where we stand before a holy God, about judgment and hell, about eternal life and heaven, about salvation, about science. Yes, even about, even about science. We would know nothing about science. Isaac Newton is a giant upon which the scientists of today stand on his shoulders, yet many people don't know that he was also a theologian. He wrote two and a half million words on the Bible. That's more than I've ever written, I think. And this is, and this is the man who, um, who helped get so much started with respect to science, some of the most basic fundamentals that we know. We would know nothing about history, about reality, about truth, about right and wrong, about life and death, about the world we live in, about what's going on in the world in this very day, about how it ends, about good, about evil, about the future, about relationships, 
about husbands and wives and marriage and its purpose. We would know nothing about honour and about dishonour. We would know nothing about uh, courage or cowardice. We would know nothing about diligence and sloth, nothing about business and integrity, about wisdom and foolishness, about virtue. We wouldn't even know what virtue meant. It's, in, it's incredible. In all his attempts to explain virtue, Socrates, through Plato, dedicated pages upon pages of almost worthless presuppositions to the point that he was no closer to knowing anything about the nature of virtue than the least educated of the people who were reading his writings. We'd know nothing about discernment and discretion, about love, about anger, about fear and hatred, about pride and humility, about disease and illness, yes, even about plagues and pestilences, about bacteria, um, about bacteria. I- I- interesting. There was Ignaz Semmelweis. He was a Hungarian physician who was known as the saviour of women. And he was famous for using three words. Wash your hands. Three simple words. In this, he reduced the mortality of women in childbearing by 99%. Matter of fact, in his own area of work, he reduced it to 100. No woman died in childbearing while he was the physician in care because he was in charge of people making sure that they washed their hands. He insisted that doctors and nurses wash their hands under running water with some chlorinated lime solutions between dealing with patients. Had he read Leviticus 13 and 14? Did he read that? Is that where he got the understanding from? Because it was evident there was nothing that you could see. He wrote about his findings in a book in 1847 and he included the use of all these things and he was rejected, however, by the medical profession. Eventually, after a nervous breakdown, trying to convince the medical establishment of their own error and hitting his head against a solid wall, he ended up finding himself having a nervous breakdown. He was committed to a mental asylum and he died at the age of 47 in that, asylum, in that asylum. There were two things that his name is remembered for in history today. Number one, that he was right about bacteria and infection. And number two is a metaphor that's actually come down to us that's known as the Samelweis reflex or the Samelweis effect. It's that which explains, quote, the reflex-like tendency to reject new evidence or new knowledge because it contradicts established norms. Amazing, isn't it? So the Bible speaks to the hidden things like bacteria, even to atoms in Hebrews 11.3 where the things which are seen are not made of things which do appear. So it speaks and teaches about healing, about care, about physics in these ways. It teaches about natural disasters, about the seasons, night and day and their purpose, about the planting of crops and their fruitfulness, about faithfulness and unbelief, about deception and lies, the nature of man, the nature of God, who Christ is, why he came, about logic and thought, about reason and beauty, about treason and loyalty, crime and punishment, oceanography and geology discovered in the Bible. Matthew Fontaine Murray is known as the father of oceanography and he discovered something that the modern shipping lanes use to this very day. He discovered the paths of the seas. 
because he saw it in Psalm 8, verse 8. It was identified also in Psalm 77, 19 and Isaiah 43, 16. There's a monument, sorry, there was a monument of him showing him seated with the Bible at his feet. Sadly, the monument was removed July last year because the people no longer desire to have a reminder of God's work through men. It took 10 minutes, 10 minutes for the crew to remove his monument. They hooked it up and they took it away to loud cheers. I can, I still got, I got the video and you can hear them all cheering. It sort of reminded me of, I don't know if anybody ever watched Star Wars, you know, um, Queen Amidala there. And she said, so this is how liberty dies to thunderous applause. And that seems to be exactly what happened then. We would know nothing about ethics and morality, about a just war, about freedom and slavery, about private property, about just punishments and penalties, about reward, about sowing and reaping, about consequence, about sorrow and loss, about happiness and about hope. We'd know nothing about these things without that which was written aforetime. Without that, we would know nothing. Without the Bible, we would have no solid foundation for our learning and darkness would remain upon the face of the deep, would have no knowledge of anything. Now, maybe you think I'm exaggerating this. I mean, maybe you think that that can't be the case. I mean, I'm talking about some of the basic fundamentals of existence and I'm covering such a broad scope of, of the reality of life. And surely the Bible can't speak to all of this. Surely the Bible can't be our final authority in all of this. It is, and it is so much more. I'm not exaggerating with regards to this. The Bible is all of that. It's the source of our peace. It's the source of our comfort. It brings life and sustenance. It is our daily bread. It's the light unto our path and the lamp unto our feet. It's the way in which a man may cleanse his ways. It's what keeps us from sin. It teaches. It's our delight. It's our counsellor. It's our alarm and warning call. It's the illuminator of our conscience. It is our song. It's the revealer of that which is hidden. It exalts the humble and brings peace to the contrite. It heals the brokenhearted and it restores the separated soul. It's the restorer of all relationships. And it's the foundation of law and justice. It strengthens the weary, it condemns the guilty, and its testimonies bring understanding. It is more to be desired than gold. It is sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. How do we know that all of this is true? Well, we know it because whatsoever things are written aforetime are written for our learning that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. We know it for two fundamental reasons. The primary reason is that because it was written by him that cannot lie. It was written by him that cannot lie. That's the primary reason. The sermon this morning is only broken up into two parts, and it's that one first. And that one has to be first because it's the... It's the absolute foundation of everything that we can understand about the absolute nature of the Bible, the Word of God. It is written by him that cannot lie, was the answer that John Bunyan gave to an individual who asked him why he should have hope in the Bible, why he considers the Bible as his absolute authority. He simply answered him and he said, because it was written by him that cannot lie. So we're going to be looking at that and the second part is because it is, its present loss 
leaves the world in darkness. And there is hope still because there has been a thread of light going through all history right up until this very day and it's retained and maintained by you. By you. By you and by me. By those of us who hold the word of God as our absolute final authority. We, Jesus said, are the light of the world. We are the light of the world. And this is the wonderful blessing that we have. So my hope through this message is that you would gain a a greater appreciation for the Bible and why it's the single most important resource that you need for your learning. And these two reasons are more than enough to give us an understanding of this. Because it was written by him that cannot lie. For whatsoever things were written aforetime are written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures... You see, God has spoken it. God has spoken it. God has said it. God is not a man that he should lie, said Balaam to Balak in Numbers 23, 17. It seems even the godless know the nature of God. And this is incredible to see. The godless even know the nature of God. They know that that there is no purpose or reason that the omnipotent, omniscient creator of heaven and earth could lie. He simply can't do so. It's not in his nature to do so. Even the people who don't know God recognize that if God exists, he must be good. And if he is good, he cannot lie. The world knows this to be true. The Lord says, I, the Lord, have spoken it. It shall come to pass. I will do it. I will not go back. All that God has given in the Bible is there for our learning. And the people of the world know that God cannot lie. If God is, then God is good. There's this, it's almost like there's a, there's a signature of God within us. That even before we knew who God was, or we identified him, or even at a time that we might have rejected him, we knew his nature, we knew his character. We already had it inbuilt you know, and it's even found in the very denial of who, who he is. The greatest argument that we have in the world about the rejection of God, people say it all the time, you know, there's evil in the world. Because there's evil in the world, God can't be here. God can't exist. They, they say that, well, if God exists, why is there so much evil in the world? Well, what do they recognize about God in that statement? They recognize that he must be good. They recognize that he must be good. And this is, this is incredible to think about it. The very statement itself presumes that God is good. That if there needs to be a God that created all things, he must be good. They understand this. But because we see so much evil in the world, God would never allow evil. Therefore, their conclusion is that God mustn't exist. Get this. Their conclusion is that God must therefore not exist. Their conclusion isn't that it could be an evil God. No. Isn't that curious? Their conclusion is that if it is not a good God, then there can be no God. This is the conclusion of even the most godless amongst us. If there is a God, he must be good. It's almost like almost like we knew this inside it's almost like there's a signature of god in us it's almost like 
I don't know, maybe our ideas about God was like, I don't know, we were created in his image. We've recognised these things innately with with regards to the nature of God. If he has spoken it, it must be true. These things aren't new. The writings themselves are ancient. The text tells us that whatsoever things are written aforetime are written for our learning. Peter brings to our understanding how these things came to pass. Turn your Bibles to Second uh, Peter chapter one. Second Peter chapter one. Move past all Paul's epistles. Go past the book of Hebrews, James. You'll get First Peter, then Second Peter, and chapter one. You see, we presuppose that God is. And in a very large way, the world also presupposes that God exists because they recognise that for God uh, not to exist, this world would have no purpose. But they don't live that way. They live as if there is purpose in life. They live as if there is meaning in life. And they, they seem to have an innate understanding of that which is good and that which is evil, which is not something that comes in a naturalistic environment. It doesn't work that way. So God is and he gave us his word. He wrote those things written for time. Second Peter one twenty one tells us how it came to pass that we could actually have it contained even in a book. It says, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. God spoke through holy men and they wrote what he said exactly as he said it before the ten commandments god instructed moses and he said the lord said unto moses write this for a memorial in a book exodus seventeen fourteen. god made his promises to israel to be written exodus thirty four twenty seven says and the lord said unto moses write thou these words for after the tenor of these words i have made a covenant with thee and with israel God had his words committed to writing from the beginning. This is the things that were written aforetime. God had instructed that his words would be also retained by the people, commanding them this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 to 9. And these words, which I command thee this day, shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. And shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way and when thou liest down and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. The value of those words of God were to be lived by a blessed people. You see, when we live according to that which God has given to us, then we are blessed. Paul, in Romans chapter 3, he asks a question with regards to the Jews and he says, he says, you know, what advantage then has the Jew? You know, what what profit is there in in circumcision? He goes on and he says, much in every way. Why? Because unto them were committed the oracles of God. The pagan world that existed around the Jewish people, the the Israelite people in that time, had no foundation for their laws. 
They had no absolute foundation for their laws. And that incredible list that I had before, that, I re- that I'd spoken before, none of that was available to these people. Why? Because they never had a foundation for them. They never had a foundation of that which is right or that which is wrong, that which is true and that which is false. Isaiah was commanded by God to write to the people. And God, and the people that didn't desire to even hear the word of God um, because there was a lot that was written against the people because the people turned away from God. And God said, now go, write it before them in a table, note it in a book that it may be for the time to come forever and ever that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children that will not hear the law of the Lord, which say to the seers, see see not, and to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things, speak unto us smooth things, prophesy deceit. Within that, within that, you get a bit of a picture of a world that doesn't want to know God. Within that, you get a bit of a picture of those Well, here we have the people who are called by God, selected by God, yet they don't want to know God. They do not desire God. They desire to have things turned away. They don't want him, but God writes. And when God writes, he writes clearly. He writes in ways that people would take understanding, that people would take warning. That's fundamentally important. Because if we had warning of things that were to come, we would run. We would flee from those things. If we had warning that what we were about to do is dangerous, we would run from those things. We've got that in the world today, in almost everything. You know, if you're going to do this, it's going to be dangerous. You could, you could get yourself into trouble, whether it's, whether it's financial trouble, whether it's legal trouble, whether it's physical harm. You know, whatever it is, people take warning and they take precautions accordingly. Those things have to be clear. God's word had to be clear to Habakkuk. The Lord said this, and the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision, make it plain upon tables, that he may run that readeth it. The warnings have got to be clear. The warnings have got to be clear. God had spoken it. And that's the point. He had spoken it, and it has to be clear. And he had spoken it in old time. Whatsoever was written aforetime. God cannot lie. So this is the one point God has first spoken of that we can accept. That God is and that God is good and therefore he cannot lie. That we can accept. All logical, all great, fantastic pastor. But how do we know that we have the word of God? How do we know that he, has he kept it? I mean, that was such a long time ago because it was written aforetime. It was written a long time ago. Has he kept it? Well, that's a great question. Because to what end would he have given these words in the beginning if he hasn't retained it for us to this end? If what that which was written aforetime was written for our learning today, it assumes that he's kept it. If he wrote that aforetime and we can benefit today and patience and comfort of the scriptures that we might have hope, it stands to reason that somehow, some way, God has preserved his words. And this is what we look forward to. This is what we see within the text. And within the scriptures, if God had not kept his words, how can Paul write that verse? It's not feasible. It's not possible. The logic of this isn't difficult to understand or ascertain. But the logical part of it isn't, isn't enough. You know, it's, it's not enough. We need to see it in, in scripture. So let's consider a few of them. 
Isaiah 40, verse 8. There'll be a few I'm going to go through, so some of them I'll get you to turn to. But some of them you'll just have to trust me. Make a note of it. Isaiah 40, verse 8. That's worth turning to. Middle of your Bibles, turn right. Isaiah, the first of the major prophets. Chapter 40 and verse 8. He simply writes there, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. In that passage, you see that the word of God shall stand. That should be all we need. Just one verse, one simple verse, that that which is written aforetime was written for our learning, that today, that today, we might have patience and comfort of the scriptures, that we might have hope. But there's so much more. Psalm 119 has 176 verses. All but four of them speak directly to the word of God. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Thy faithfulness is unto all generations. Thou hast established the earth and it abideth. Psalm 119 verses 89 to 90. In Zechariah chapter 1 verses 5 to 6, a fascinating one. He says this, he says, your fathers, where are they? Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? And they returned and said, like as the Lord of hosts thought to do unto us, according to our ways, according to our doings, so hath he dealt with us. In other words, these men, these men, where are they? Did they, did they stay forever? Did they live forever? Yet even they took hold of these words that are presented to you here. Even they took hold of these words and held on to them. Some lived by them, some rejected them. But even they were convicted by those words. It's the word of God that stands forever. Jesus said that the scriptures cannot be broken in John 10.35. Paul wrote that the great advantage of the Jews was because God had committed to them the oracles of God. Peter reaffirms that which was written in Isaiah 700 years earlier in that passage uh, in 1 Peter 1.21 or 23. He says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. So do you take comfort in his words? I mean, do you, do, you, do you pick up the book? Do you read it? Do you, do you consider those things that were written aforetime? Those things that were written for our learning, do you consider them? I mean, God has said this is true. God has promised that this is the case that we can have patience and comfort in the scriptures, that we might have hope, that we could be exactly what Jesus said we are, and that is the light of the world. That is the light of the world. God has promised to keep it, but, but, but we've also been greatly deceived. Greatly deceived. And terribly deceived. And so many in the world have been so terribly deceived. So many Christians have been terribly deceived. And there's a part of it that makes me think we've been willfully deceived. Like we've almost wanted to be deceived. And we, we see this. 
I speak about the confidence that God has preserved his words. Ah, but pastor, the text says word, not words. It says word in that passage there. This is the word which by the gospel, he's not talking about the individual words, he's talking about the basic message, the general message of the Bible. That's the preservation. You know, it doesn't actually extend to his words. Wish I had a dollar for every time I heard that expression. The reality is really simple. If you change the words, you change the message. If you change the words, you change the message. There was a book I actually wanted to bring down for you from my study so you can actually check it, but you're going to have to check this yourself. The changes occur in three ways. We're not going to go into a lot of detail. This is just one part of one small point. There have been changes to this book. You might be aware of I'm using and, and, and believe the authorised version is the very word of God. This is God's preserved word for the English-speaking people. I believe it's perfect. I believe it's pure. I believe it's unadulterated. And half of the people that are just listening right now just switched off. Bye. Sorry. But that's the reality. That's what we have. That's what I believe. And I know that it keeps me safe and it gives me hope. But there have been many, many changes. They have been changes through three ways. One by omission, another by addition, and the other by alteration. The vast majority of the changes are omission and alteration. Oh, I really wanted to get that book. So I've got a copy of an ESV that's in my study uh, that I wanted to give to you to check me as I go. But we'll, 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 do, this, we'll do this later for fun. Have you got ESV? The app? Yeah? Great. Crack it open. Modern technology. So we can get these phones, these things on our phones. The ESV. ESV is one that I'm going to be considering for the example of omission. And we're going to be looking at alteration. They're the only two. The main, the main errors that we have within modern translations today are omission and alteration. There is a little bit of addition, but not a great, not a great amount. So those two I'm going to be picking on. I'm going to be picking on the English Standard Version, the ESV. Why? Uh, two reasons. One, because it's a pretty good example of the errors in all modern versions. Two, because it's also become very, very popular these days, even among Baptists who should know better. Have a look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, if you have an ESV. What we are looking at is omission at this time. The words without a cause is removed from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5.22 But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. The ESV removes the words without a cause. It removes the key words and in so doing changes the meaning. Now... Anyone who's angry with somebody is in danger of the judgment. And it actually does a lot worse than that because it also condemns Jesus himself who clearly got angry. Who clearly got angry. Did he have a cause or no cause? The Bible says if any is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. In Matthew 9.13 the words to repentance is left out. The words to repentance is left out. Matthew 9, 13. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. 
I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Sinners to repentance. Simple. We need sinners have to be called to repentance. But the ESV removes the simple words to repentance. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Hello, sinners. Well, what is that? To repentance. We understand this is fundamental. If you change the words, you change the message. They are to be called to repentance. They must repent of sin. They need to realize that they are sinners, not ignore it. They are to see it's their sins that damn them. And they have to have a complete change of mind respecting their sins. The entire verse is removed from Matthew chapter 18, verse 11. That whole verse is gone. Matthew chapter 18, verse 11 gives us the very purpose of why Jesus came. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. Deleted. Deleted in the ESV. Deleted in all modern translations. The very purpose of the coming of Christ is deleted. Yet they continue to tell us no message has changed. No, no, no doctrine is affected. But if it's not the words that give us the message, then removing the words wouldn't, shouldn't change the message. And yet here it does. Turn, if you've got an ESV, turn right now to something really important. Turn to Mark chapter 10, verse 24. There's a key phrase removed from the ESV. So it's Mark chapter 10, verse 24. If you have it in your Bible, there's Boots. Hello, Boots. <laughs> Mark chapter 10, verse 24. You've got your authorised version. Great. If you have an ESV, great. Check it out. Text in the authorised version of the Bible says, Children, how hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. The ESV says, Children, how difficult it is to enter in the kingdom of God. Can I ask you, is it difficult to enter the kingdom of God? No, no. But it is hard for them that trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Imagine telling that to your child. Well, what do you say to a five-year-old who wants to be saved? Child, it's difficult to enter into the kingdom of God. No, it's difficult for them who trust in riches. It's not the words, it's the message that matters, they say. Beloved, if you change the words, you change the message. The message was written for our learning and it was written aforetime. Alterations in the ESV, just alterations. Galatians 5.19 changes the word fornication which has only one meaning and it's simply a meaning that most people are offended by today and that is sex outside of marriage. That's all fornication is. Nothing more, nothing less. It is sex outside of marriage. You can look it up in a dictionary. It's, that's all it is. And Galatians 5.19 says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. The ESV says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, Impurity, sensuality. Adultery is missing. Sexual immorality. What's sexual immorality? Look up sexual immorality in a dictionary. You won't find a generic meaning for it. It's basically that which 
the mores of the people determine at the time. If you're moving with the, with the times, then the sexual immorality idea changes with the time. Whatever you was immoral before is now moral. Whatever was, was, was disdained before is now not only sustained but encouraged. So fornication has been removed and altered by another phrase, sexual immorality. I don't think I need to go on. There's more and more and more. And to be honest, I could be here for days on end telling you about all the corruptions that are in the modern translation. So the question that we have is, are they the words or is it the message that needs to be preserved? Clearly, it's the words that provide the message. Now, just for the sake of clarity, for those who think that it's not the words that are preserved, but the message Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Matthew twenty four thirty five. Repeat it again in Mark thirteen thirty one, and repeat it again just to make sure that we got the picture in Luke twenty one thirty three. Word for word, exactly the same. Just again, so we don't confuse what Jesus was trying to say. If the words are not preserved, neither is the message. If the words have passed away, we can learn nothing from its author. That which was written aforetime must be retained. Whose job was it to, to, to preserve God's word? Yeah, it's his, his job. Turn the last passage for this point and we'll go on to the second portion of this sermon. Psalm 12. Psalm 12. Middle of your Bibles are the Psalms. Unless, of course, you've got a really long concordance, uh, means you'll need to sort of go a little bit more to the, to the left. Psalm 12, <coughs> two verses there, verses 6 and 7. The Bible says simply, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Beloved, whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. The words were written before and they have been kept. They are preserved. They are intact. We have them even in our own language. God has not lost a single word in translation. Not a single word. And if you believe the contrary to that, then you do not believe your Bible. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. If you believe that God has lost a single word in translation, you don't believe your Bible. You don't believe what it teaches because you're not going to ever find a single verse or word or passage in here that gives any such indication that somehow we don't have his words preserved today. It's incredible, isn't it? We recognize this. We recognize the translation can't be a problem because... The verse that I quoted you from Peter was translated from the Hebrew of Isaiah into the Greek. <laughs> anyway, we could talk about plenty of those things. The next point and the next larger point, the most larger section is because its present loss leaves the world in darkness. Pastors have replaced the light. This is the sub point. Pastors have replaced the light. What I mean by pastors in this text are both kinds. 
The pastors that teach a godless world and the pastors that are in the churches. Pastors have replaced the light. A little bit of a history lesson. The Roman Empire lasted for some 500 years until the 5th century AD. It's of interest that it was during the reign of Theodosius, a descendant of Constantine who early in the 4th century wrote the Edict of Toleration. That was Constantine. Constantine wrote the Edict of Toleration. He was suffering Christians to be able to live, and all religions, to be able to live without persecution or anything like that. Up until that point, Christians were being martyred and killed for their faith. Other religions were also um, being killed for their faith. The only religion that was acceptable in the Roman Empire was that of the worship of the emperor. Theodosius, however, was the one who made Christianity the state religion. He was a great-grandson or the grandson of Constantine. And it's incredible to know that the Roman Empire soon fell, almost immediately after that pronouncement was made. What replaced it was called the Holy Roman Empire. And it ruled from that point until the Bible was translated into the language of the people or the languages of the people about a thousand years later. That thousand year period has come down to us known historically as the Dark Ages. That was the age of the Holy Roman Empire that lasted a thousand years. Light came into the world, however, when the people had the word of God in their own language. When the people learned to read the Bible, it changed everything and everything changed. Everything changed in the world. The world came out of darkness into this wonderful light and everything had a renaissance, a rebirth. That's what renaissance means, just just in case you don't know. Renaissance is a French word, means rebirth. The world had a rebirth. Art, science, literature, architecture, music, theatre. In fact, The creativity of man seemed to have known no bounds when suddenly the very word of God was opened up to to them. A freedom came from this book that gave people hope, that gave people joy, that brought understanding, that brought reason, that brought logic. Everything made sense and the world was lifted out of this dark age into this beautiful rebirth. Great men whose names are still brought to us today Leonardo da Vinci, Raphael, Michelangelo, Donatello, Botticelli, Dante, Erasmus, Petrarch. These men, great writers, great artists, great architects, great engineers. These people are known to us today. And it all came out of that wonderful period when the word of God was open. No longer hidden, locked away in a Latin language that not even the priests who read it could understand. No longer locked away, no longer taken away from the people. It wasn't without a fight. It certainly wasn't without a fight. The Catholic Church desired that no person even memorise the very word of God. Even that was a sentence of death. But something also happened because within that rise of the great Western civilization, which we are still the beneficiaries of today, that's how long it's lasted, we are still the beneficiaries of that today, There was, however, even within that, a small seed of its downfall that began to germinate some two centuries later. There was a period known as the Enlightenment. After the Renaissance came the Enlightenment. The pastors of the world at this 
point, begin to replace the light. And the pastors of the churches begin to permit it. It was here that men began to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Many things were incredible during this time. Isaac Newton was born and with him a giant leap forward in science. What Isaac Newton was to science, René Descartes was to philosophy. And what are we to add with respect to this incredible development of classical music in that day with Bach and Beethoven and, and, Mozart, and Mozart? And yet even within that, these Germans also brought with them what came to be known as German rationalism. In other words, elevating the mind of man and slowly denigrating the mind of God. Man began to think of himself as more highly than he ought to think. He started believing that the rational mind was more than adequate to be able to understand what truth is, what reality is. Because man's successes during that period of time had elevated the heart of man above that which should have been, like Nebuchadnezzar who stood at his kingdom and said, is this not my great kingdom that I have built for my majesty? Not realising that it was God that was doing the work. This is what we see. You see, it was at the peak of man's self-exaltation that gave man the notion that he could justify questioning God. And that was what came out of German rationalism, the questioning and critiquing of the Bible. New pastors arose to teach the world that which God had not written aforetime. And the pastors of the churches begin to permit it. Soren Kierkegaard led the charge towards our postmodern relativism today, claiming essentially that man creates his own meaning. He's known as the father of existentialism. A quote in his journal entry in 1835, he wrote, The thing is to find a truth which is true for me. Ever heard that expression? It came from Soren Kierkegaard. To find the idea for which I can live and die. What is truth but to live for an idea? The influence of Kierkegaard in the West, which many years after his death was, was brought up, a, a lot of the... Um, Kierkegaard was a Danish uh, philosopher, a relatively young man, um, and he did a lot of writing, but it wasn't actually realised because people weren't studying Danish language. Um, and it wasn't until they read some of his writings after his death that he became to be very, very famous. Um, but there was another man by the name of Johann Eichhorn who actually started the effort to criticise the Bible and coined the phrase higher criticism. That is, the criticism of the Word of God. He began to cast a dimness over the Enlightenment. If the seed of darkness germinated during the Enlightenment, the wind blew it all over Europe and the world by the late 19th century. Then you had the rise of men such as Karl Marx, George Frederick Hegel, Friedrich Nietzsche, Charles Darwin, Brooke Fost Westcott and Fenton John Anthony Hort. Together these pastors and others like them pulled down the shutters they closed the doors and they did all that they could to seal the gaps lest any light should enter back in. And the pastors of many churches permitted it. John 3, he says, Light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Interesting, isn't it? We seem to like darkness. 
We seem to be drawn to the darkness and not to the light. Ever notice that in society today? I'm sure many of you have subscriptions to things like Netflix and Amazon Prime and Disney and all that sort of stuff. I'm sure you've all got all got subscriptions there. I, I, I won't admit to any. But what do you see on there? You go, you go through that and you see some of the most popular programs are darkness, not light. They are darkness. Men seem to be drawn to the darkness. Now these individuals began justification for that darkness. Judgment is turned away backward and justice standeth afar off. For truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter, says Isaiah in chapter 59, 14. Because you see, with darkness also comes um, everything else that follows it. If we've abandoned truth, if truth has fallen in the streets, then there can be no justice, there can be no equity, there can be no judgment. Matter of fact, the opposite will come through. Injustice, a lack of judgment, a lack of truth brings forth deception. It's a very simple way that these things fall out. In the 20th century, those men that I mentioned then and others like them ushered in in what is known as the bloodiest century in the history of mankind. Jeremiah gave an answer as the Lord spoke to him in chapter 14, verse 14. Jeremiah said, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I sent them not, says God. Neither have I commanded them, neither spake unto them. They prophesy unto you a false vision and divination and a thing of naught and a deceit of their own hearts. You see, they thought their scheme good. They thought that it would be one that would lead to prosperity and harmony. They thought that everything that was achieved in the past can continually be doubled into the future because we've done so well in the past, but they didn't know what undergirded it. They didn't know what built it up. They didn't know what framed it. The first revision of the English Bible was printed in 1881 in England called the Revised Version. It held a copyright for 10 years before appearing in the United States in 1891 known as the American Standard Version. They're both essentially the same book. Suddenly, whatsoever was written aforetime was no longer suitable for our learning. This single insignificant snowflake of heresy once accepted, started an avalanche of Bible versions that has all but taken away whatsoever was written aforetime. In 1832, almost 50 years before this snowflake fell, there was an article in the Banner of the Church newspaper that said this, If alterations of the received version once commence, where will they end? The reception of the authorised version of the Bible by the whole Christian community, wherever the English language is spoken, is a blessing the value of which cannot be estimated and the loss of which would be one of the heaviest curses which could befall the Church of Christ. If one substitution may be made, another may be. And the Bible, by this impious transmutation, become, after a few successive changes, the book of man and not the book of God. Do you see? This was written 50 years before we had that change. Today, with that which was originally written for our learning finally removed from the hearts of the world and from most of the churches, from where will we gain the patience and the comfort of the scriptures that we might have hope? Where's it going to come from now? 
If we've seen the blessing of the Bible in the past and now we've rejected it, where's your hope going to come from? Where are you going to find it? Have a look at the world today. Pastors have rejected the light of the word. They have rejected it. The pastors of the world have replaced that light and the pastors of the churches permitted it. No, no. No, they permitted it until, until they accelerated it. And they stood at this pulpit and pulpits like this saying, no, but another word is, no, but a proper word is, or that's an error. And they've taken faith out of the hearts of the people of the world. The last part of this sermon is the people have rejected the light. First the pastors replaced the light. Now the people have rejected the light. It's interesting, nothing occurs in a vacuum. Nothing occurs in a vacuum. We can't attribute the demise of this light in the world only to selected men. Because if it were not for the acceptance of the people, none of these writings would have ever become popular. None of the writings of these men would have ever even reached the surface or broken into the light. Paul wrote of it almost 2,000 years earlier, saying, For the time will come while they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 to 4. There is a simple verse in the Old Testament book of Jonah. Turn there with me, please. Jonah chapter 2, verse 8. So go into the middle of your Bibles, turn right after the Psalms, after the major prophets like Isaiah, Ezekiel. Go past Daniel. You hit the book of Amos, slow right down because Obadiah is only one page long and you'll miss it. Jonah is the very next book. Jonah chapter 2. One simple verse and I, you, this is a verse that really needs to be shouted out loud today. Jonah... Chapter 2, verse 8. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. And this describes so well the days that we are living in today. They observe lying vanities and they forsake their own mercy. The world is suffering because darkness has been permitted to envelop it and people have no hope. The world at large has rejected the truth of God's words and have done and having done so the world has been handed over to deception. There's a post I recently responded to. I, I wrote this Never has God been so globally rejected and the Bible so denied. Now tyrants are our rulers and lies are our daily bread. Incredibly, however. As true as that statement seems to be in this world today, we just looked at a brief history of the Dark Ages and we saw the breaking out of light and now we see us entering back into another Dark Age. But what's incredible is that throughout history during that time there have always been people who inhabited light. There has always been a thin thread of individuals along that path and along that journey that had light in their land, always had light in their land. And it reminded me, thinking about that, reminded me of, of, of Exodus in Egypt. Worth turning there too. Promise probably the, la- 
the last last verse I'm going to get you to turn to. Exodus. You need to turn there. Exodus chapter 10. Exodus chapter 10. Verse 21. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. And Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They saw not one another, neither arose any from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. How wonderful is that? In just the same way, the dark ages of the Holy Roman Empire, there were also a people who had the light of the word of God. They had light in their dwellings. And they had whatsoever things were written aforetime. And they knew that it was written for their learning. And they had the patience and comfort of the scriptures. And they had hope. And we know who they are today. We know who they are. They lived in Italy in a region known as Lombardy. They lived in northern Italy and there were probably others, but these became famous because of, well, partly because they had the light. They were also seriously persecuted by the Catholic Church. They were in the valleys of Piedmont. They were the, Valden the Waldensians, the Albigenses. They were also called by derogatory names such as Anabaptists, which is where Baptists, we Baptists derive our name. These had the word of God. These were the line of believers that ran right alongside the history of Roman Catholicism but never joined them. These had light in their dwellings. They had hope. They had joy. They had comfort. And you know what? They exist today. They are all those who have the word of God in their lap and believe it and read it. And they gain from it the understanding that they need. They have whatsoever was written aforetime. And learn. And we have patience and comfort and we have hope. The world needs hope in these days. You have it if you have the word of God. If you are born again, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. And shine, shine. If you're the light of the world, shine for the sake of this world. Shine. Maranatha. Heavenly Father, thank you, dear Lord, for your word. Thank you for the wonderful joy and the wonderful truth of the word of the living God. I pray, dear Father, that those that have this word, that those that have light in their dwelling will indeed be the light of this world as it pierces this darkness. And I pray, dear Lord, that we would indeed shine. I ask you, dear Father, that you would encourage us with the wonderful hope of the word of God, that we hold on to that which was written aforetime. I pray, dear Lord, that you would help us to learn and that we may be able to show to the world the wonderful hope that we have. We give you praise and thanks.